confirmations that what you're doing is the right thing. And by the way, I had something else I was going to do this morning too, but we're going to be out of time today. Um, and that was to have a dad joke off. I have some dad jokes written. And so any of the dads that come tonight, we're going to hold a contest tonight. Basically, I'm going to give each of you three random dad jokes, and you've got to say those jokes to the other person, and the first one to laugh loses. Now, I know one of you guys has tabs on your Bible because I found one of them, and would you know it's the tab to the exact place that we're going to take our little, what I would call, diversionary journey today. Before, we've been talking about uh, prophets and things like that, but today is Father's Day, and like I let Kristen do Mother's Day, now I get to do Father's Day, and I actually really look forward um, to this day in particular because, well, like many of you... um, Things with my dad didn't always go as planned, amen? Um, fatherhood's a tricky, things now, <laughs> tricky thing nowadays. Um, last year, I actually, the sermon was called Fatherless Days because we have more without dads than we do with dads anymore, or, or what did you call functioning dads, right? Um, it's a blessed thing if you get to be raised with your father and actually have him um, in the story. So we're going to talk to get today about a guy named Jephthah, and I know you guys were thinking, Jephthah, that's a perfect Father's Day message. Every preacher is preaching on Jephthah. I don't know if you know this, but contractually, we're obligated to sing the song, Good, Good Father, every Father's Day. They check up on you, make sure you've sung that song on Father's Day now, that it exists. You have to do that, right? Um, but nobody preaches on Jephthah. In fact, Jephthah, you will see, has a lot of good qualities, um, but as a dad, he makes, he makes a pretty bad mistake. We'll just read Judges 10, 18 to start with. It says this, And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. The time of Judges was a difficult time for Israel. It was a nation just emerging in the midst of enemies, and their only claim to the land they now lived in was a promise made by an ancestor from centuries before, and their only way of surviving was to have faith in the God that brought them there. In the book of Judges, you have a lot of names you probably recognize, like Samson and Deborah and Gideon, but then there are names like Ehud, Shamgar, and Jephthah that kind of get passed over. The story of Jephthah is not an easy story. Let's go read verses 6 through 9. In chapter 10 it says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Ammonites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. Have you ever known you were going to get a whooping? Did you ever do something and you knew your parents were mad about it and a whooping was coming? Wasn't the worst when you did something in public that you knew they couldn't whoop you there in public, and so they told you as soon as you get home, you're getting a whooping? And if you, if you were like me and church was far enough away that you're hoping the whole time they're forgetting, right? Like, oh, well, I'll get home and they'll get busy and they won't remember. You know, my parents always remembered it, just they didn't always want to give us one, right? They didn't actually, oddly enough, they didn't want to spank us, right? So they'd pretend to forget sometimes, and sometimes they would not forgive. It was bad enough, Gloria, they wouldn't forget. 
They'd remember that whole ride home, and you'd almost, you'd hear the silence in the car, and you're sitting back, I'm going to get a whooping, right? Well, Israel had been doing the things that Israel does, which is they've been going off after idols, they've been going after strange gods, they've been going off and worshiping gods other than Jehovah. And, um, and by the way, and so you know, just, just as an aside, when we say the name Jehovah and we say the name Yahweh, in the Bible they are actually the same name. There are only four letters, and we don't know what the actual original pronunciation of it was. Isn't that funny? Because it became so holy to people that they would never speak it outside of the temple, and then eventually no one even inside the temple remembered how to speak it. So when we say Jehovah or we say Yahweh, we're coming as close as we think we can, but we don't actually know. Just a fun fact, right? But they were running off and serving other gods, and punishment was coming. See, that whole thing about when they were beyond the Jordan, the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonites, in Israel, you have the, the Sea of Galilee, you have the Jordan River, and you have the Dead Sea, and it kind of creates a, a barrier on the east side, right? Like we would say the Mississippi River or something like that would kind of create a barrier. Now, when the Ammonites were attacking the Israelites over there, it was almost like you're in the other room when your brother or sister are getting a whooping, right? Like you can hear it, and it makes you sad, but a little happy, right? <laughs> like, like, you're like, you're like, oh man, I hate that they're getting a whooping, but at least I'm not getting a whooping, right? That's, you, you feel bad for them. Well, that's kind of what was happening. First, they're attacking everybody on this side of the river, and they feel bad about that, right? I mean, that, that gets to them, but hey, you know, well, it's not, well, now the Ammonites have crossed the Jordan, and now they're really in distress because now they know that they're next on the list, right? You always want your brother or sister to get spanked first. Maybe they'll be tired by the time they get to you. Jephthah is not the story of a perfect man, but in Hebrews 11, there's Hebrews 11, if you ever read it, it talks about all the heroes of the faith, and he shows up there. The reason that's perplexing is because sometimes we're going to look at his life and wonder how he ends up in the roll call of heroes. He, he does some stuff that we're not going to agree with, but somehow the Bible kept the story in there. You've got to understand how amazing it is that God preserved these specific stories through time and in the shape they're in. Because one of the things they always come against the Bible and say, well, it was written by men or this or that or the other. But there is a divine preservation on the word of God that happens to no other book in history. The closest thing we have, I talk about like the New Testament um, is the most um, accurate ancient document we have. The next closest would be Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. Right, and of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, we have about five hundred. We have about five hundred copies that come down in various shape, um, and you know, like half page here, half page there. They dug something up. For the New Testament, you have twenty-seven thousand, and we even have five or six complete copies of the entire thing. There was no complete ancient copy of Homer's Iliad or Odyssey. So the Bible has been preserved, and I always look at it because sometimes there are things in it that I'm just like, why, why God, why keep that story? right? I love the honesty of the Bible because, see, when people talk about Scripture being like a myth or a legend or something like that, I always say, well, you must not read many myths or legends because I love myths and legends. I love reading the Norse mythologies and the Greek mythologies, and I love the original source to see what these people thought in their time about what God was. And when you read those, they don't read anything like the book of Judges. You know why? Because all the other old books, they always kind of skip over the parts where they did anything wrong. Right? The old heroes were perfect. Right, they, they, they made no mistakes. All their actions were exactly the actions they mean to take. You see people in the Bible who make mistakes. Did you know that? There are people in the Bible that do the wrong thing. In the story of Jephthah, though, what I want to pull away with is seven things that make a man. There are seven lessons I want us to learn in the book of Jephthah 
for Father's Day, and this is not necessarily about fathers, but men in general. And the first thing is this, is that a man is defined by his covenants. So, verses 10 through 13, it says, And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, we have forsaken our God, and serving the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians, and from the Amorites, and the Ammonites, and the Philistines, the Sidonians, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites, oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. That's kind of mean, isn't it? God, we're in real trouble here. Help us. Mm. It doesn't seem fair, does it? it? But you know what? It's like seatbelt seat laws. I don't like seatbelt laws. I don't like it that somebody out there will enforce the fact that if I'm not doing something in my car, they're going to come write me a ticket for it. it makes, you know, I, just, I just don't like it. It feels like an invasion of my car, right? But I put on my seatbelt, one, because it's a law, and two, because it's this. It's not about being fair to me inside my car. It's about being fair to the guy that has to scrape up the pieces of you that are left when you don't wear a seatbelt and get thrown out of your car and you're splattered all over the highway, right? It's not fair that they have to come back and clean up the mess that you've made because you didn't wear a seatbelt, right? I, 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 I <laughs> the same way with God here, because if you look through the book of Judges, there's this little thing called bereth. It's a, a Hebrew word. And sometimes they'll call a place El-Bereth, and sometimes they'll call the place Baal-Bereth. El means Lord or God. They would use El Shaddai, means Lord Almighty, right? El Elohim, um, all these different words. El is a word for God. Baal, of course, is a word for Baal, right? So if you have a place called El-Bereth, then that's a place of covenant with God. When you have a place called Baal-Bereth, it's a place of covenant with Baal. And Israel was beginning to define themselves by the covenants that they keep. You as a man will be defined by those things that you decide to keep covenant with. Some of you guys are very smart. And like I told my oldest son, you know what smart gets you? Nothing. Right? You can be clever and you can be smart and you can be a failure in life. Some of you guys are really talented and can do things that other people just can't do. And do you know what that means? It doesn't mean anything because there are plenty of talented people living unfulfilled, desperate lives who don't know what to do with themselves. You can be rich and there are people out there who are rich and unhappy and suicidal, right? You can have all these things going for you, but none of those things are going to be what blesses you. What blesses you is the covenant you make. When you make a covenant with your wife, there's a thing about that that blesses you when you stand at an altar before God and you say, this is my woman, I'm going to stand by her forever, come thick or thin, whether she's mean to me or not, and, and you know. Um, <laughs> she'll be mean when you guys aren't looking now. Um, I'm kidding. She's the nicest lady ever. What blesses you is who you choose to be in covenant with. God says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. When we go looking after the thing, when we say, hey, I'm talented or I've got means or hey, I'm really charismatic or hey, I'm really strong or I have all these giftings or I have all those things. None of those things matter if they're not put towards the purpose that God has built you to do, right? Secondly, a man must learn to be the right kind of jealous. Look at Judges 10, 11 through 19. Now Jephthah's going to come into the picture. Well, not yet, not yet. So verse 11, And the Lord, and the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you? Um, skip down, go to verse 14. Go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let's, let them save you in your time of distress. And the people of Israel said, We have sinned. 
Do whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. It says, we have sinned, do whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us. And then they take the extra step of putting the foreign gods away from themselves and serve the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Do you know that in those times, if you were serving Baal, it was okay for Baal to you to serve him and serve Asherah and serve Chemoth and, and whoever else, and even serve Yahweh too. You can go ahead and throw him in. Baal was okay with him being served alongside everybody else. In fact, when we read their ancient documents, they'll say things like, didn't I sacrifice to all the gods, right? Did I try to make everybody happy? Yahweh's the only one that says I have to be the only one. Did you know a real man needs to be the right kind of jealous? Now see, here's the thing. When we think the word jealous, what do we think? We think jealous and mean, don't we? We think jealous where a man uses his strength to control a person, where he uses the strength of his voice or the strength of his arm or the strength of who he is to control a person because he's jealous and you can't be out of my sight and you have to do what I do and, and go where I go and all of this. But real jealousy isn't that. Real jealousy says, I want to protect you. Real jealousy says, I want to be the only one you love and I'm not going to do that by forcing you to love me. I'm going to do that by wooing you. See, God shows us this because God never comes into our life uninvited, right? I've never seen the Holy Spirit take an unwilling person and move through them, right? That's not how God works. That when he is jealous for us, it's because we know we're not supposed to be who we are without him because he loves us so much he wants us to see that. And he never uses violence or strength or anger to do that. He always uses gentleness and kindness and he woos us. It is your kindness that leads us to repentance, Lord. A man should be jealous in that way. A man should be jealous for his wife, for his family, for anybody that's put under his care to say, I'm going to love you so good that if anyone else were to come in, they couldn't love you like, they couldn't do for you. What I, I'm going to love you with all my heart and I'm going to make this thing all about me and you and it's going to work because of that. Not because I have to be in control or because I'm stronger or anything like that, but because I'm going to win you. It's an amazing thing to me that the God of the universe, all-powerful, almighty, that can do anything, puts himself up to our rejection, that lays himself out there to be abused by us who so often will say, no, thank you, Lord, that's nice, but that's not what I want. So in verse 16, he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Even knowing they deserved it, God wouldn't let his children get bullied. <laughs> I remember one time, your good Father's Day story for you. Um, this may shock you, but in my young teenage years, I had a smart mouth. I know. Luckily, the Lord's healed me of that, delivered me of it, and I've gotten past it. Amen? But that occasionally led to conflict, and I solved conflict like every other little boy. I remember once, though, I got in a fight where the kid was too big for me, and I couldn't take him, and so I went back in and told my dad, and he looked at me and said, go back out and get a stick. That was, I was like, Dad, I can't take it. We'll get something. I'm like, what, Dad, what? Um, mainly because he knew I was the one starting the fight. And if I wanted to, your dad's not going to step in and finish your fights just because you're angry because you lost. Amen? Right? Do we ever treat God that way? That, hey, now do this, God, because I tried this every way and I can't seem to get it. Now you do it, Lord. Right? He has every right to say no when we're sitting there trying in our own strength to accomplish our own ends for our own glory. It is completely within the right of a sovereign God to do what he does for his own glory. Amen? So, even knowing they deserved it, God wouldn't let his children get bullied. 
And so Judges 1.11, here's the guy he's prepared. And number three is this, a man must learn to rise above his circumstances. 11 verse 1 says, Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Did we just say that in church? It's in the Bible. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in your father's house, for you're the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So Jephthah starts off life in a family that doesn't want him. He shows up as the son of another woman that, you know, dad's got to take care of him now because dad made the mistake, and you're here, here you are, your dad's mistake, sitting in here with us. Well, when he got old enough, they're like, you know what? We don't want you to have part of our dad's inheritance, so they drive him off. And what does it say? It says he went out and found worthless men. I, I love that phrase that the Bible calls people worthless men. The actual idiom or figure of speech is they were empty men. They were men without honor. They were mercenaries. They did what they did for money. And so you wonder what kind of person Jephthah's going to become out of these circumstances and coming from this background. But he rises above it, and you're going to see this. Because when they get in trouble, when Israel is looking for somebody to come lead them, they go looking for this guy. Now keep in mind, and we're going to have to fill in a few blanks here, and some of this is going to go beyond the text, and if you're like, you know what, that's beyond the text, I don't want to receive it, I'm okay with that, okay? I'm not... Uh, but there's a lot of inferences in the text. Things like this. Things like the fact that even though he went off and he had a band of what you'd call bandits, right? They were marauders. They were kind of men for hire. They were going here and going there. He seems to have had a noble character because the people spoke to him as if they want him to be a leader. So they saw something in how he was leading those men that it wasn't just the might of his arms, but it was how he dealt with things. And we're going to see in a few minutes when he deals with enemies that he understands how to fight fair. So even though he came out of a situation where he could have been angry and bitter and just gone around hurting people, he decided to rise above that and become something because here's what we know about God it says that the chief corner the the stone that was rejected has become the chief cornerstone God has a heart for people who have felt rejected God wants to build things out of people who feel rejected God wants to take people who, when they look at their lives, they think that their life is the kind of things that other people throw away. He wants to take that and he wants to build it. You know, if, if I were to, say, have a pile of diamonds here, I could make you a Christmas card with just some hot glue and diamonds and you would love it, right? Because the diamonds themselves are inherently valuable and it could be the ugliest thing ever and you're still going to take it from me. You're like, no, please, right? But God is the kind of God that can take rocks, and make something so beautiful that you don't understand how you didn't see that before. He can take the rejected and he can make something out of that. He can build something out of the life of people who feel rejected. Number four, a man must know when it's time to go to war. I'm not going to read all of this. Judges 11, 12 to 28. You'll have to read some of this um, because there's just too much to read through it. I love this because I'm a huge nerd. Um, this conversation Jephthah has, if you go back and read this chapter, you're going to see that Jephthah doesn't immediately strap on a sword, grab his guys and say, let's go swing at some people, 
right? The Jephthah stops and he writes a letter to the Ammonites and he writes a letter and says, hey, why are you attacking us? Why is there any reason for there to be a dispute? And the Ammonites send him a letter back and he sends another letter back to them and says, listen, this is why we are in this land. This is why we are here. We need you to respect that. And then when they wouldn't do that, then he goes out to war. A lot of times because we know we have the strength to do something and something goes wrong, we pull out our sword and start swinging, don't we? We start taking what power we have and we start moving in that and we start... (laughs) Guys, sometimes because we have big booming voices and because we can shout somebody down and because we can assert ourselves, we can run over people. Amen? All the guys are going to... Got one amen. Thank you, Josh. Appreciate it. (laughs) Appreciate you, brother. Right? But that's not what he does. First, he assesses the situation. First, he looks to see if it's worth going to war over. One of our biggest problems as men is sometimes we think every battle is worth fighting and every battle is not worth fighting. Uh, The old adage says that if the only tool you have is a hammer, then every problem looks like a nail. And sometimes guys are like that. I always say guys are, you know, strong like ox and smart like tree, right? That we just want to, look, I'm strong. I can just go ahead and bang on this long enough and it'll, um, in fact, I love there's a little psychological experiment they did with kids once where they wanted to see how boys and girls reacted to different situations. So they'd take a toddler age girl and a toddler age boy and they'd put, there'd be a piece of glass between them and then mom would come over here and sit, but the glass is between them. And so the little girl would sit down and cry and weep, ma, you know, because she's wanting to use her words for mom to come over there and pick her up but you know what the boys would do right you guys know they would up and they would have been banged on the glass mom hey mom look i'm bang on this and eventually you know it'd take me a long time to bang through that but it didn't go through your head as a guy you know we still think if we bang on it long enough this thing's gonna break and we're gonna get through it we have to decide that not every war is worth fighting over that a lot of times especially people who know how to push your buttons are gonna push your buttons to get you to go to war over something you don't need to go to war over did you know that you have to assess and you have to decide and you have to look there is a time to fight there is a time to go to war. And we live in a society now that sometimes, oh, there's never, any t- there's never any good thing that comes out of war. Well, except that it ended slavery and defeated communism and took out the Nazis. Yeah, there's almost never any reason for war. But there is a time when there are things worth fighting for. Men are given strength for a specific reason. The problem is, is we end up wasting our strength on things that do not deserve it. We end up fighting so many battles in our homes and with ourselves and with things that don't matter that when the time comes for the battle that does matter, We have nothing left to give. So Jephthah sends out letters. He decides that it is time to go to war. And so Judges 11.29, and we're going to read this one. So 11.29, anybody have have subtitles in your Bible? Can I just tell you, especially when I really started reading the Bible for the first time, I hate that they had the subtitles because it gives the story away. Right, like we were just kind of reading some of the old stories, and you just want to read it, and, and this, the, the subtitle of mine says Jephthah's tragic vow. Right, so we know something bad is coming here. In verse twenty-nine, it says, "Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give me the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Jephthah is a force to be reckoned with at this point. He is a wrecking ball moving through the Ammonites everywhere he goes. His sword comes down. Ammonites either die or run. 
right? God is giving him victory, and so he says, you know what? This is going so great, Lord. If you'll just finish this thing for me and give me victory, when I get back anything, Lord, whatever comes out of my house first. Now, let me, let me, let me ask you this. How many of you would make that vow? Like, let's say you've got just something super important, right? You've got a court case, or you've got a job interview, or you've got something going on, and you say before you leave, God, whatever happens today, if you'll make me successful in this, when I come back, I'm going to offer you as a sacrifice the first thing to come out the door. That must mean you don't like your dog. That would be my first guess, right? Well, not only that, and, and we're going to go into this because, because this vow is a very, a very specific vow. Nobody else in Scripture does this except for him, and it, and it doesn't turn out well. A man, go to number five. A man should learn to control his words. <laughs> you can undo a repair on a vehicle. You can't undo what your kid heard you say while making that repair to that vehicle. Right? <laughs> You can undo a lot of things, but once words leave your mouth, you can't undo them. You can't say, now actually once, I remember Kristen and I, I can't remember, we were, we were arguing and I said something remarkably stupid, right? Just, I mean, it was, it was almost, you almost, you almost, after it came out, you're just looking for a second like, I said that, I can't believe I said that. And so the next thing I said to her was, I'm so sorry, don't let this go on my permanent record right? Like, because I knew what I had said was that dumb, right? That, that women, and you guys know there are things that you let go, and there are things that you keep, and every now and then a guy says something, and you're like, hmm, okay, we'll just, we'll just, uh, all right, that one's coming back, right? We're going to hear that one again. Guys, got to learn to control his tongue. You can't unsay anything. Once the words are out there, we talk about the power of words, and the thing is, is most of the time we're talking about how the power of our good words are, right? Like, man, you speak something in faith, and God's going to bring that to happen. You speak things believing in, and God's going to answer your prayers, and you cry out to the Lord, and He's going to answer that, and yet we don't assume the same power is there when we call someone stupid. We don't assume the same power is there when we tell someone to shut up. We don't assume the same power is there when we call someone worthless, we assume the power is only in the good, but let me assure you the power in your words also extends to the negative as well. And when you say something you shouldn't say, it has the same authority and the same power as if you meant it. Amen? I know, don't be mean on Father's Day. I mean every day. <laughs> I had something else written there. We'll go past it. Number six. A man should know, must know, there are things more important than winning. Let's read the rest of the story. We'll go back to 32 where we stopped. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Arar to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities as far as abel Karemin, and with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before all the people of Israel. He wins. You get it. You did it. Good job. Then Jephthah came home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. See, that's why I hide the tambourines, Angie. The Bible says hide the tambourines. Kidding. She was his only child, besides he had neither son nor daughter, and as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low and become the cause of great trouble for me, for I cannot take back my vow. He understood the power of his words. And she said to him, My father, you have opened my mouth, your mouth to the Lord. 
do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, the Ammonites. So he won, but he made this stupid vow that he would devote to the Lord. He didn't just say devote, did he? He said burnt offering. This is why you don't hear this preached on Sundays. The Bible leaves a couple of things ambiguous here for us, and I think it leaves us ambiguous on purpose. How many of us, let's start with this, how many of us men find victory in life but find that our victories have cost us something more important? Sometimes the things we sacrifice for family become the things that we sacrifice family for. Sometimes the things that we sacrifice for our family become the things that we sacrifice our family for. Let me give you something about modern parenting that I as a parent have struggled with, and I think most modern parents have struggled with this. The primary job of a parent is not protection, it's growth. Say that again. The primary job of a parent is not protection, it's growth. You don't want to just protect the baby and always have a baby. You don't want to protect the baby and then have an eight-year-old who still is a baby, right? You want the child to grow. You want it to become. You want it to blossom. You want to see what it's like as it gets older and it walks down the path of life and all the things it does. But for some reason, we've gotten into our modern heads that our primary job is to protect. And what ends up happening is we become so protective and we become so nurturing and we become so, hey, don't let me, don't. They're talking now how, how hard millennials have it at job interviews, right? That moms are going with kids to their job interviews, right? Dads are going with their kids to their job interviews because we think it's our job to protect them. And let me tell you something, and this is especially for you as dads, sometimes you need to let your kids fall. Sometimes you need to let them stub their toe. Now listen, I'm not saying let them go touch the stove or stick their finger in a socket, right? But you got to let your kids grow, and you can't protect them from everything. And your job is not to protect them from everything. It's to teach them to get over the things that do hurt them. It's to teach them to advance beyond the things that can harm them. It's to teach them to outgrow the things that are keeping them down. It's not protection. Protection is not your primary job. Your primary job in your family is growth. Now, and I know we don't do this, but you know husbands have a responsibility to wives and wives have a responsibility to husbands. We take oaths before God. So you know as a husband, your primary job with your wife is not her protection. It's her growth, right? It's not about encasing her in this glass case and making sure nothing ever happens to her. It's making sure that in life she is all that God has called her to be. Did you know that sometimes your wife needs healing and to get that healing, you're going to have to confront her? Did you know that? If there's any spirit that, that just grips the heart of men nowadays, it's that spirit of, I don't want to get involved or I don't want to fight that battle or we'll just see how this goes or maybe if I don't do anything, it'll just kind of work itself out. You have your strength for a reason. You have the gifts God has given you for a reason. And the primary job of a dad in a family is not protection, it's growth. It's that everybody in that family becomes what God has called them to be. That's harder though, right? It's easier just to protect, right? Get your concealed carry. What was they say about the 50 cal desert eagle in case there's an intruder in the house next door behind a refrigerator, right? It's easy to do that. 
It's harder to look at your kids and think, man, what are they going through in, the, in their lives and, and what can I put into this kid? What can I pour into their lives? How can I talk to them? How can I reach them? How can I communicate with them in a way that's going to make them what God has called them to be? It's easier just to push down the bullies for them, right? It's easier just to go to school and yell at the teacher because they're getting bad grades. It's harder to get in your kid's life and say, hey, why are you struggling? What's going on? What is it that bothers you? Why do you have depression? Why do you have these things you're going through? It's a lot easier just to be strong. It's harder. It's harder to see growth. And the last one is, every good man should know how to repent. So Judges 11, 36 through 40 says this. And she said to him, My father, you've opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, and I am my companion. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed. And she and her companions, and they wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. The first time I ever taught this lesson was to royal rangers, which were boys between the ages of um, 8 and 12. I was doing the book of Judges, right, because I was young and stupid and forgot that sometimes the Bible is not safe and easy, right? It was never meant to be a safe, you know, sanitized, easy book to go through. But let me throw a couple of things out here. And one is, when you go back to verse 31, in verse 31, it says, uh, whatever comes out of my, the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. That word and right there in the Hebrew is a conjunction that can mean one of two things. It can mean and or it can mean or. So he could, you could translate that and said, shall be the Lord's, or I will offer it up for a burnt offering. What does that mean? Well, Samuel was given to the temple, so he was dedicated to the service of the temple, right? Um, Jehovah God nowhere in the Bible ever accepts the sacrifice of a person, right? Ever. So one way you can translate is is that, and, and the reason they also say this too, and I read this actually from a very good Jewish scholar because the Jews have a really real problem with this because you can't just sacrifice anything that comes out of the door because not all animals are clean. What if a pig had come out to meet him? What if some other unclean animal had come out there? He couldn't sacrifice that to the Lord. So saying that he was either going to devote it to the Lord or make it a burnt offering meant that if it was clean, he was going to make it a burnt offering. If not, he would devote it to the Lord. And the other thing that kind of gives us a point that he didn't actually sacrifice her was the type of memorial ceremony because it says that they would go out every year um, at the end of two months. She returned to her father, did according, and she never known a man. And the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. It doesn't become a Jewish ceremony. It doesn't become something they always do. So the inference there is, is that while she was devoted to the Lord, while she was cloistered up, while she served in the temple, wherever it was, that they would go out and mourn with her because she was dedicated to the Lord before she ever came of age, something like a nun or something like that. And so they would go and lament. Be that as it may, God would have been happier with him repenting of the vow than he would have been sacrificing his daughter. In, in whatever shape that took, right? In whatever way that pans out, he would have been happier 
with a man who knew how to repent. See, the problem with repenting is this. This is the problem everybody has with repenting. It's not that I'm sorry, it's that I was wrong. Right? Because guys, we're sorry about anything. I always tell everybody this in marriage counseling, if your wife has a dream you were a jerk and she wakes up and says you were a jerk in the dream, you turn to her and say, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be a jerk in your dream. Dream me as a jerk. I am so sorry for that guy. Right? You just do. Hey, trust me. If you want to get along, just learn. Because it doesn't cost you anything. Right? No one's, oh, you know. You just, right, just apologize for that guy and go on with your life. But sometimes, guys, when we make decisions and we make a big deal about how we as a guy are making this decision and we make a vow like Jephthah made, and I tell you what, we're going to beat these Ammonites, we're going to beat them so bad, and I'm going to take whatever I get when I get home and sacrifice it to the Lord, right? We talk big and that's okay, but know how to repent when you talk wrong. Amen? Know how to say, I was wrong about that. I see people all the time who just can't seem to stop fighting because they can never just come to a place where they could have been wrong about something. Man, I've been wrong about six things this morning, right? Just trying to get to this service. I'm like, oh my gosh, I forgot to do that or we got to do this. And I'm okay with that because none of that makes me a worse pastor, worse dad, worse anything. In fact, the fact that I can admit a mistake and go on with it makes me a better pastor and a better husband and a better dad. I don't have to convince my kids that everything I did in their lives was all for your good, right? Because sometimes I was just tired and didn't want to deal with you, all right? I used to get so mad at my parents growing up because my brother or sister would do something. I was mad at them, a justice guy. I need justice for this. They did this. And my parents would be like, you're both grounded. What? (laughs) That's wrong, right? They were just tired. I always had something to fight about. I always had something to argue about. They just didn't want to deal with it. And there have been times when I've gone back to my kids and been like, hey, I was, I was just tired, man. I just, like, you probably did not deserve the tongue lashing I gave you, or you probably didn't deserve that. I just had a long day, and you came at the end of the long day with one more problem, and, and it, was either, it was either yell at you or choke you, and only one of those sends me to jail, right? <laughs> we as men have to know how sometimes to just say I was wrong. You know what? I had a lot of stuff going on. I was hungry. I was tired. I was lonely. I was frustrated. Somebody, I just got off the phone with somebody who gave it to me because I, I did, it wasn't even my fault at work, but they just gave it to me, right? And you were the next person I saw, and I was still in that frame of mind when we talked. And I'm sorry. I was wrong. Why is that so hard? Why is that, why is that the unsurmountable mountain that most of us cannot get past? And yet, unforgiveness is the unforgivable sin, right? That if we can't forgive others when they do wrong, then God doesn't forgive us. Isn't that terrible? You know, the Bible says that. Why would he put that in there, right? That if we don't forgive others, then he doesn't forgive us. It's almost like saying he expects something out of us. Amen? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Yeah, Kelly. Kelly.